This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're inching ever closer to October 1st, the day that the online insurance exchanges and the Affordable Care kicks off. Well, it's a day we've waited for for a long time, and a lot of states still scrambling to get online for the first customers who'll be wanting to purchase insurance in the new online marketplace. New York State is ready for business with its exchanges. They even have a catchy marketing campaign with a little help from Billy Joel. We're in a New York state of health. Has a nice ring to it. I wish we could find a song like that in our state. And of course, they've also made their insurance rates available for review, as are all the states. And it appears that there will be some bargains for New Yorkers shopping for insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Indeed, several states are boasting insurance rates that are far lower in some cases than the going commercial rates. And speaking of insurance rates, Mark, for the second year in a row, the growth in insurance rates has slowed considerably on a national level. We were seeing almost double-digit increases in recent years. In fact, health insurance premiums are up 196% since 1999. But last year, the increase was a modest 4%, and I'm hearing we're going to see that again this year. Margaret, you're absolutely right. Insurance premiums for job-based family coverage rose a relatively modest 4%, reflecting slowed health spending. But that's not necessarily the rosiest of pictures. Uh, For the first time, average health insurance cost for a family plan has topped $16,000. That's a lot of money for health coverage. It is. And of course, there's huge concerns about the out-of-pocket expenses, not just the premium. So still so much work to do to contain health care costs. That's going to require transformation in how we deliver care, how we make it more efficient and more effective in terms of the outcomes for everybody. That's something our guest today is working hard to do. Uh, Dr. Rishi Manchanda is the founder and president of Health Begins, a startup using innovative technologies to improve care for patients with social as well as medical needs. He's written a really interesting book, The Upstream Doctors, in which he promotes the growth of an upstreamist movement treating the social determinants of health that are so associated with poor health outcomes. We'll get another visit from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Rishi Manchanda in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Doctors and Medicare patients, the numbers are up. According to a report from the Department of Health and Human Services, the number of physicians accepting new Medicare patients rose by one-third between 2007 and 2011. It's now higher than the number of physicians accepting new private insurance patients. In 2007, about 925,000 doctors billed Medicare for their services. That number in 2011 1.25 million, according to the report. It's partly a reflection of the aging population. Statistics and the health care law were only weeks away from the October 1st start date when Americans will be able to purchase health insurance online in those insurance exchanges set up by the Affordable Care Act. And California is one of the states who got into the act early, setting up their own exchange and such. But a poll out shows the average Californian knows little to nothing about the state exchanges. The field poll found only 25 percent of Californians had heard anything about the state's exchange called Covered California. And only 18 percent of the uninsured population, those who are most likely to be users of the system, had any knowledge of all of how it works. The poll's findings suggest much more needs to be done to educate consumers in California how they'll navigate 
navigate those online insurance marketplaces. And what about the National Health Insurance Exchange scene, which will be covering the needs of more than 30 states across the country? A couple of national surveys are making some predictions. The average health care costs across the board are expected to rise a little over 5% in the next year. And most analysts are predicting an increase in high deductible plans being offered to employees as well as incentive programs for wellness activities like increasing exercise and losing weight. But workers don't have much to cheer as the increases are still double the rate of wage increases and four times the rate of inflation. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Rishi Manchanda, a physician, public health entrepreneur and founder and president of Health Begins, a startup implementing innovative technologies to improve care for patients with social as well as medical needs. Dr. Manchanda is also founder of Rx Democracy, a national nonpartisan coalition to promote health equity through civic and voter participation. He's a board member of the National Physician Alliance. And Dr. Manchanda is also author of The Upstream Doctors, in which he calls for the upstreamist movement to transform health care by addressing the social determinants of health care. Dr. Manchanda, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. You've been a longtime activist uh, seeking better health outcomes for tackling social determinants of health. In your recently released book, you coined the phrase upstreamist. Tell us about this upstreamist movement uh, you're trying to generate in healthcare, and who are the upstreamists in the healthcare system? In the book, The Upstream Doctors, I argue that the future of healthcare depends quite simply on growing and supporting more upstreamists. Uh, these upstreamists are the rare innovators who are on the front lines of healthcare. They're the ones that see that health, like sickness, is more than a chemical equation um, that can be balanced with pills and procedures administered within clinic walls. They're the ones that see rather that our health begins in our everyday lives, uh, in the places where we live, where we work, eat and play, the, the, what the experts call the social determinants of health. Uh, the extremists are, you know, they, they can be doctors, nurses, or other clinicians. Uh, they're the ones who know that asthma, for instance, can start in the air around us. They understand that obesity and heart disease originate partly in the way that we've constructed our busy modern schedules and the, and the unnatural food choices sometimes available in our communities, um, and even in the built environment and the way that our neighborhoods are designed. Uh, the extremists know that, that uh, depression or high blood pressure can arise from stressful conditions that are chronic at work or at home. Uh, the last point about the extremists is that the extremists um, be, move beyond just having this understanding of, of health where it begins, but really translate that knowledge to meaningful action. And they do so uh, not just as advocates in the community, um, but as really transformers of their clinical care delivery. Dr. Machanda, you had an early introduction into the upstream uh, concept of healthcare. You're a student at Tufts working with the underserved population in Boston, and you've worked in rural communities in Africa, South America, and India. And I'm really curious to ask you, in so many ways, the touch points are similar to the development of the community health center movement in the United States with Tufts and the work of Dr. Geiger and others. I know you've been involved in community health centers in your career. And so tell me, where does the upstreamist movement take off from those concepts of community-oriented primary care and and being of and in the community and responding to the social determinants of health? I think it's a great point. And in fact, in the book, I talk about the lineage of upstreamists that dates back to uh, even further back beyond Jack Geiger to the, the Karks, of course, in South Africa, where Geiger himself mm-hmm. received his own inspiration. And then even further back uh, to Rudolf Virchow, the 
the father of modern pathology as well as the father of social medicine, the physician who was sent in the 1800s by the Prussian Empire to a, a remote region of of that empire in Europe to investigate an uh, epidemic of typhus and came back and reported that the, the root cause of many of the, the plague that was upon that region was, uh, in fact, uh, found in the political economy of the place. So, you know, the extremist movement has been uh, part of medicine from, from the get-go in terms of modern medicine. And I think uh, COPC, the community-oriented primary care movement here in the U.S., the community health center movement, certainly the extremists who are out there on the front lines of healthcare today are, are all part of the same lineage, as we are undergoing this pretty momentous time in, in healthcare transformation because there's a lot to be learned, I think, from the lessons of extremist pioneers when we think about the, the, the challenges at hand in terms of the triple aim, you know, achieving improved costs and improved quality and improved outcomes for a whole population. It's vital for us to think about the ways in which we orient the healthcare system to treat health where it begins. You know, I want to pull the thread a little on on the concept of uh, upstreamist. In your book, The Upstream uh, Doctors, you give a very illustrative example of why a healthcare industry is failing so many. And you talk about a patient, Veronica, who had been suffering for over a year with progressively worsening headaches and other debilitating ailments. And the, the use of specialists and numerous tests didn't really have any effect on her situation. So tell us about the upstreamist approach you took uh, to focus in on her disease causality and how things were turned around. The story of Veronica, I think, is indicative of the story of a lot of us in healthcare. Um, for Veronica, this was a patient who came in uh, to a clinic I was working in in South Central Los Angeles. And when I first met her, she had her head in her hands in the exam room. Her, she was a, a tall, pretty formidable presence, um, but she was slouched over in pain. And she'd been suffering from headaches that had come and gone for, for a number of years. She had gone to three different emergency rooms trying to get relief for her care. In months and years prior, she had tried to uh, get relief in, in going to the fragmented primary care system in that community and was still unable to kind of get a diagnosis. Prior month before I had seen her, she had received a, a dozen blood tests, a, a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture, and just a, it's a whole host of interventions that you know represent in some ways the best of modern medicine. But for Veronica, each visit to the emergency room ended the same way. She was told that her test results were quote-unquote normal. She was sent home with more pain medication. Lastly, she was told, of course, that you know if the pain persisted, then to just to return back to the emergency room. One of the hospital visits led to a $1,200 bill. Her own rent uh, was about $850 a month, so already she was experiencing stress financially. Um, she was fighting back tears as she described the toll this was, the situation was taking on her family. Uh, she was calling upon her mother to help take care of her kids. And bottom line, she was still in pain. This is a pretty typical scenario, uh, unfortunately, in our healthcare system. Uh, Access to quality care is a problem. For a long time, it's been poorly coordinated, expensive, and stressful. I know that that's now, and thankfully, changing as part of the Affordable Care Act, in my opinion. But I do think there's something in Veronica's story that's also more illustrative of the extremist scenario, and we did things slightly differently. And the the difference was that our medical assistant um, not only recorded vital signs as part of the normal operating procedure in a clinic, but she also asked her some simple questions about her housing. Veronica indicated that she had problems with mold and water leaks and roaches. The medical assistant recorded those answers into her chart. I reviewed the chart and I saw that she had a headache, saw her vital signs. Uh, as soon as I opened the door, that you know, I was armed with that social data. That data helped to tailor my care. Uh, that social data was critical. It, it allowed me within 15 minutes to feel pretty confident in my diagnosis after talking with her and doing a targeted physical exam. Veronica, in fact, had migraines related to chronic nasal allergies and sinus congestion. And these conditions are often made worse by 
dampness and the very things that were markers of substandard housing in her, in her home. So I ended up uh, giving her some treatment, but then I also referred her as part of my treatment plan to a program run by our clinic in partnership with some local organizations to help make her housing healthier. And so one of our partner organizations sent a community health worker to her home and assessed her situation, provided her with new techniques for controlling some of the dampness in her home, and even connected her to resources so that she could advocate uh, more clearly with her landlord. Veronica, you know, followed this advice. Uh, A few months later, she came back into the clinic, and she hadn't been to the emergency room anymore. Her home was healthier, her headaches were gone, and she and her family had gotten better. That's a glimpse, as I call it in the book, of a, of a slightly better standard of care, and I think that's illustrative of what we can all strive for with the upstreamist approach. I think you have a stated goal of promoting the development of a national task force of at least 24,000 upstreamists in the American healthcare system by the year 2020, and you've said that we don't just need to cultivate the upstreamists, but the comprehensivists and the partialists and the integrated medicine also plays a vital role. So tell us sort of structurally and How are you going to develop, cultivate, inspire this national task force? The extremist really comes from that that simple story that, you know, uh, many of us know in public health, which is the story of the friends who approach a river and see a child pleading for help while clearly something's wrong, and the three friends jump in to try to help that child to safety, only to find that there are more children in the water. And eventually, over time, those friends start to obviously take care of those children. One of them focuses on the, the children who are at most risk of drowning right away. Those are the what I would call the the partialists or the specialists in our system today. They're the ones who are trained and are vital parts of our system. The other person becomes a comprehensivist, the one who can coordinate a raft, you know, so that they can uh, avoid falling over the waterfall. But that's the era that we're in right now, the era of the comprehensivist. As as we've seen with the Affordable Care Act, we have a moment right now where the patient-centered medical home is is on the rise, the idea that everybody deserves a, a personal physician and a team of providers. The story, though, that parable also includes a third person, and that is that that person who starts to swim upstream. And swimming upstream, she shouts back, I'm going to find out who or what is throwing those children in the water. And in the book, I describe this goal of of training 24,000 upstreamists by the year 2020 on making sure the healthcare system that they're working in, that their colleagues are thinking about the social and environmental drivers of disease. By the year 2020, um, many Expert organizations estimate we'll need about 460,000 partialists, uh, you know, roughly 46 or 60,000 more than we currently have today. Experts estimate that we'll require certainly more comprehensivists, and um, we'll need around 250,000 primary care comprehensivists by the year 2020, and that's about 45,000 more than we have currently as well. While we strive for that goal that we also, again, get 24,000 upstreamists in the system, and these are people specifically tasked with uh, the opportunity to redesign their healthcare system, to build bridges to other sectors, to improve the quality of care and the social determinants of health. We're speaking today with Dr. Rishi Manchanda, a physician, public health entrepreneur and founder and president of Health Begins, a startup implementing innovative technologies to improve care for patients with social as well as medical needs. And Dr. Manchanda is also author of The Upstream Doctors, in which he calls for the upstreamist movement to transform health care by addressing the social determinants of health. So those are a lot of providers coming into the practice who are going to end up being upstreamists, and they're going to have to have different tools than their stethoscopes and other tools that they have. So it doesn't seem that there's currently an infrastructure in place to support the outreach that you envision. So let's look at your new startup, Health Begins, which you call a Think Do Tank. And I understand it's a 
portal for upstreamists in healthcare to connect and share solutions to address patient and social and community needs. What are the new innovative technologies you're deploying with Health Begins? That's right, Mark. I, I think, as you said, that the infrastructure isn't there currently. And, and if we think about the infrastructure, clearly there are regulatory, cultural, and financial obstacles. In the book, I describe uh, the challenges in, in, with the infrastructure. We, I use the acronym Trident. The, the first T in Trident is for the, the lack of time and, uh, that exists. The, the R is for lack of resources. The I is for lack of incentives. The, the D is for lack of data that's accessible and actionable. The N in Trident is for um, for networks, and the last uh, T is for you know, training. And, and the work of Health Begins is to try to work in both addressing some of those specific problems uh, head-on and find partners to address the ones that we're not able to address head-on. So, for instance, the first thing we did in terms of uh, our work with Health Begins, we decided to take on the first challenge of the lack of a network. You know, there, there simply isn't at this point a space um, for upstreamists to come together um, as there is for the, the comprehensivists and the partialists. We needed that, that network and support, and we decided to create that both in the real world as well as online. Uh, several months ago, we started an online platform, and, and now it's invite-only platform. People can visit the site at healthbegins.org and, and sign up, but uh, right now I'm proud to say we have about 530 members and growing um, every day. The other um, uh, work that we're doing is around training with Health Begins, and, and across the country, not only are we giving presentations to to uh, residents and practicing clinicians, uh, medical students, and even high school students, we're, we're also taking that, that content, give specific information about how we can connect the dots within healthcare to the social determinants. We take that training and we make it online. So that's what we're doing right now. We, we're um, moving our content into online modules following the, the lead of wonderful vanguard organizations like the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, moving content into a format that's accessible by learners of all levels. And so I'm, I'm proud about that work. There's some, a few other tools that we're putting, putting together, as, uh, and we envision ourselves really as, a, as an incubator um, you know, for some of these ideas. And by deconstructing the, the infrastructure problem into, into addressable pain points, we can really make a dent Dr. Manchanda, I know from what you've said and, and what you've written that you're interested in data, big data sets that really help you understand populations. And I'm thinking as you uh, talk about that in our uh, home state here, the health directors worked uh, very hard over the past several years uh, to develop a health equity index, which looked at every single city and town in the state of the social determinants of health, and we're really to, able to create an index down to the block level. And it would seem that one ought to be able to have access to that kind of data in the same way that we ask about all the other history elements. Are there any outstanding points of light around the country where that level of availability of data on the social determinants of health likely to be affecting that individual or that family are incorporated into the primary care system? Yeah, the great news is, is as you're talking about in Connecticut and around the country, that there are some glimpses of better care on the horizon, you know, we, we, and, and of specifically the applications of um, big data, of health information technology, and bridging this divide between clinical care and the social determinants. So. You know, I think of examples in the state of Vermont where the Blueprint for Health that uh, has been adopted there as part of their statewide implementation of the Affordable Care Act has, has not only called for a medical home and uh, you know, the formation of accountable care organizations, but really the inclusion of community health workers. And uh, there is going to have to be a data infrastructure in place in that state. There's examples of organizations out in as far as Hawaii, you know, of an organization that I profile in the, in the book about uh, 
a clinic called KKV for short, and what they do is collect information about their patients' food habits and uh, and access to food, and uh, and based on that data, we're able to not only provide better care in the clinic walls, but then advocate for the institution of a community farm in collaboration with other partners there so that uh, diabetics and other patients can get access to healthier food. They, they use that data for advocacy. We had a report that came out about a year and a half ago, uh, the Institute of Medicine um, released a report outlining opportunities to improve the integration of primary care and public health. And as that report indicated, there, uh, you know, widespread adoption of electronic medical records represents a major opportunity uh, to improve social determinants. And I think whether it's in communities where substandard housing is endemic, many clinics are well positioned to collect data from their patients on the social determinants of health. Uh, we're going to have the ICD-10, you know, that updated classification list developed by the WHO. That's at some point in the near future, going to be, um, in the next few years, going to come online and require clinicians in the U.S. to code for diseases and signs and symptoms, of course, but also for social circumstances to a level of specificity that's been unprecedented. And that gives us, uh, that's going to unleash a lot of uh, additional data from within the healthcare system about the social and environmental drivers of disease. You know, what I really like about uh, the work that you're doing is you're both high touch and high tech. But I want to talk a little bit about the tech side because. Sure. Healthcare uh, industry has been very slow <laughs> to uh, adapt and adopt uh, into new technologies. While EMR is belatedly coming online, it's taken billions of dollars to uh, sort of solicit people's engagement. But uh, you've been looking at the uh, Yelp-like roadmap for healthcare, and you say it's been done in other industries, and uh, obviously it's not been done in healthcare. And uh, it should be a wayfinding tool. Tell us about your idea for a six-step roadmap that uh, could help us better map out the social determinants that are impacting population health. You know, it's remarkable that healthcare is so remarkably behind the ball. In some ways, we have so much data. We pride ourselves on technological advances in, in diagnostics and in therapeutics, and yet we, we just miss the ball uh, when it comes to bringing best-of-breed technology to bear for patients, particularly those who most need it. I think it's important because there's a, there's a rise of technology solutionism, and I'm, I'm certainly an advocate in many ways of increased applications of technology, for us not to, not to fall into a trap that many technology enthusiasts sometimes purport, which is that there's an app for everything, right? Um, in some ways, <laughs> this technology can only make us better and more efficient, but it enables the real work of the upstreamists, which is to leverage that technology and data to move the needle on the social drivers, and that means the work of face-to-face organizing while there's an app for a lot of things, there's not an app for the important work of reorganizing our healthcare system. So the six-step roadmap within Health Begins is designed to help the, the people who might be listening to this right now and thinking, well, you know, if I want to be an upstreamist, that sounds great, but how do I do this? So we walk people through those six steps and make it attainable. The first step is, of course, to define the population and then to move on to define the social determinants of that community and to use technology to do so, to then develop a very specific intervention and then to use the best knowledge of quality improvement to think about moving the needle on that social determinants, not only taking the data from that pilot, but then, of course, celebrating that spread and using specific tools that come from mm-hmm. uh, the social movement and business community to, to, to spread that knowledge. So the specific example of where the tool of the Yelp-like thing comes in is grew out of an experience that we've been most proud of in, here in South L.A., we started working on the education side with high school students, and over the past year, 70 high school students have participated in an educational curriculum, a weekly curriculum, where they learn about the social determinants of health. What's interesting about that is that every week, as they learn about housing or nutrition or whatnot, they also map the resources that can address those drivers. And when I say map it, they literally are going online and looking for the resources that can address the, the needs of their parents and their, themselves, their neighbors. 
And that mapping exercise results in a resource listing database that we then turn over to the clinical partners to say, now use this resource listing database, this Yelp-like service, to now more easily connect a patient with a social need Mm -hmm. to the resource that these students have mapped. We call this model Community Health Detailing 2.0, the idea of taking the, the exercise of detailing that the pharmaceutical industry has used for so long and bringing it to using the the expertise and the power of community mapping to um, help detail the prescribing behaviors and the practices within a clinic so that the community itself is saying, here here are the resources, doctor, that uh, exist outside your clinic walls, and here are the ways in which you can help a patient that walks in your door to find them through a simple, easily accessible online tool. That's our vision. We've built a prototype of it and are proud to be um, in the midst of a beta right now with some clinic partners here in Los Angeles to make that happen. Right now, doctors and case managers and others in the healthcare system are looking at, when they find a patient come in with a social need, they're still looking at binders full of tattered papers to find that number for the housing agency or the WIC provider or the food stamp or the, 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 the Legal Aid Foundation. So it's incredible that we're still using 12th century tools to tackle 21st century problems. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rishi Manchanda, a physician, public health entrepreneur, founder and president of Health Begins, and author of The Upstream Doctors, Medical Innovators Track Sickness to Its Source. You can learn more about his work by going to healthbegins.org or follow him on Twitter by going to Rishi Manchanda. Dr. Manchanda, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Obama recently made a sweeping claim about the Affordable Care Act saying that all of the uninsured would be able to get insurance on the exchanges, quote, at a significantly cheaper rate than what they can get now on the individual market, even without federal tax credits. But experts, including Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, have said that younger Americans would likely pay more on the exchanges, while those who are older would likely pay less. Much will depend on the individual. If you have a medical condition, you'll likely pay less on the exchanges than what you would have paid on the individual market, and perhaps you weren't even able to get coverage at all. But not everyone will pay lower rates. The law requires a minimum set of benefits, which will make some plans more generous and more expensive. The law also changes how insurers can calculate rates, and experts have long predicted that will cause a shifting in premiums. Right now, insurers can charge more based on health status or gender. They won't be allowed to do that in 2014. They'll also be limited to varying premiums based on age to a 3 to 1 ratio, meaning older folks can't be charged more than three times the rate for the young. This change from medically underwritten policies to community rating, which limits premium variation, will bring better deals to some and worse deals to others. About 90% of the uninsured will qualify for Medicaid or subsidies to help them buy insurance. But Obama said they'd pay less even without accounting for subsidies. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Low literacy rates have been linked to poorer health outcomes around the globe, so Nicholas Negroponte decided he should do something about that. The chairman emeritus of the MIT Media Lab has been on a mission since 2005, the year he launched One Laptop Per Child, whose mission is exactly that. Negroponte figured his organization could meaningfully change the lives of about 100 million children living in the world without access to education. He felt that a sturdy, child-friendly laptop relying on solar power could change that statistic. What if we go to these parts of the world where there are no schools? There just there aren't any. There are no literate adults. And of course, the children are illiterate. 100 million. We can try an experiment where the kids teach themselves. Negroponte was so inspired that he tried an experiment in an Ethiopian village that had no teachers, no schools, no literacy. That brought boxes of computers to the village, left them there with no one to instruct the children in any way. Within five days, they were using 47 apps per child per day. Within two weeks, they were singing ABC songs. And within five months, they had hacked Android. Negroponte says this could enable a whole new way of teaching around the globe that effectively has the power to eliminate illiteracy. And one hopes improve the economic and health figures of these children as well. The One Laptop Per Child organization now has deployed 3 million computers in 40 countries and 25 languages, distributing a simple, durable laptop into the lives of children who would have otherwise been left illiterate and offering a promise of a brighter future. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.